Welcome to Health Raisers. Health Raisers don't just survive, together we thrive. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. So when I think about this in terms of my life and the work that I do um, and have done, I think it comes from the matter of like giving to other people, respecting who they are, and most importantly, the respect is about having a great and good effect on another human being. I made a choice to try and use my life to have someone else's life be better. Michael Feely, my friend, who is a professional actor and singer in New York City, headhunter, life coach, real estate broker in the beautiful island of Seba, and an akimbo workshop coach in the Creatives Workshop. Michael, it is going to be so much fun to talk to you today. You're so vivacious and so generous. And I can't wait to dive into the subject of love and how you show that and have shown that to your community in so many ways. Oh, you're so kind. Nadine, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited about it. And I want you to know how much I respect you as a human being and your work. And I've been so fortunate to work with you in the Akimbo workshops where we first met. And so uh, you have my absolute love and respect. So, Michael, let's talk about how you have in your experience over your lifetime in the various roles you've had shown love in your work? Sure, sure. It's a, I would say it's such a, a great question. It's emotional for me. And because I am a person of service, meaning that since I was born, I have a huge desire to help and serve other people. Just And not just do it mediocre or average. No, it's got to be like top-level service. If I'm going to shovel a driveway, it's going to be like I'm a snowplow, you know? So when I think about this in terms of my life and the work that I do um, and have done, I think it comes from the matter of like giving to other people, respecting who they are, and most importantly, the respect is about having a great and good effect on another human being. Love that. Okay, let's start in your career as a performer. I've had the privilege to talk to Anika Larson, who is a Broadway singer and actress. And I will also get the honor of talking to our mutual friend, Charles Wilson, Mr. Black Buck himself. Oh my God. So how did you find it within you to be so generous and loving in and giving in your performative life? I think it really began with you know where it started. I was 11 years old and I went to see a, a musical at the high school called The Boyfriend. And the moment it started, I said, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to be an actor and a singer in, in musicals, in Broadway musicals, whatever it was. And the thing that affected me most is how the people on stage gave so much of themselves in words and actions, uh, singing and dancing. And the audience was so happy. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to entertain 
people and make them happy. You know, that was my goal. Certainly, I, w- I wanted the applause and I wanted to take a bow because gratitude is essential for an actor. You know, you don't want to be booed off the stage or have tomatoes thrown at you. But um, the opportunity to have a good effect in another person's life um, through singing and acting was what I was hell-bent on. And um, so I just studied like crazy. I, I got into every musical I could. I sang in the chorus, you know, community theater, high school programs, whatever I had to do, I did it so that I could hone my skills and get to what I really wanted to get to. And that included going all the way off to college and studying there for four years at Syracuse University and the University of Hartford, Hart College of Music. And then I went right to New York City. I was like, I'm going to pound the pavement and I'm going to build a career. And did I think it was challenging? Sure. But what I felt was I had something. I had skills. I had talent. I had abilities. I worked at it and I knew I was going to win. So that's how it began. I went after a dream. I was committed to it. I loved what I did. Sure, it was discouraging. Sure, it could be challenging. But I had this dream and nothing was going to stop me. And if I fell down, I picked myself up and I was really positive. And I said, people are listening. They're getting to know you. You're being invited back to auditions. So that's where it went. And for 20 years, Nadine, uh, doing other jobs in the city, I cleaned apartments. I worked as a travel agent. I cleaned up uh, storage rooms. I answered phones. I ended up in sales, selling cruises and uh, about 20 years. And then eventually I got to a, you know, a good career. And then I made a choice to move on to other things. I would really love to get to know you from an early standpoint in your life before you decided that you wanted to become an actor when you sure. were a child growing up. Tell me about your life, your neighborhood, your community, and how you wow. were able to connect with the people around you. Great. Yeah, thank you, Nadine. You flood me with a lot of memories and a lot of feelings. Um, life was not easy for me when I was growing up. I came out of adversity. Uh, I came out of a really unhappy home. Uh, my parents had a terrible marriage. I think a good deal of that had to do with the fact that my father was really challenged with alcoholism. He was, um, uh, I don't know, really, he suffered over it, but he was not a kind man. Uh, lots of verbal abuse, never physical abuse, but lots of verbal abuse in the home. And I had a brother, an uh, older brother, so the two of us sort of lived through this for many, many years. And um, along with that, also as a child, I was very ill. Like around the age of eight, I came down with a serious disease called dermatomyositis, which is a collagen disease. It affects the muscles and the tissues in your body. And technically I was supposed to die. The doctor said, he's just gonna die, so prepare. I didn't know this and I didn't think about it. I just wanted to get home. I wanted to get on with my life. So I had those two things that were challenging to me, but I always had inside of me this feeling of like, Life is hard. Uh, I'm coming out of really hateful situations, but I'm gonna be happy on my terms. I'm gonna make my life happy. Nobody's gonna tell me what to do. I'm gonna build my life. I'm gonna do what I have to do to get out of here, to get to college, get a good education, and to have life on my terms. I will do what I have to do, but I'm moving on from here as soon as I'm old enough to do it. You know, And in those days, you know, I was like 18 years old before I could leave home. And also at that time, uh, later on in my life, like early, I also knew that I was gay. I had feelings for men. 
And I used to think, okay, not only do my parents have bad marriage, not only is my father an alcoholic, not only am I have a serious illness. Now this, I have to deal with being gay, caring for men when that's not something I should be. And everybody says, you have to get married, have children. That's where you have to go. So out of all of this, this was me, you know, like from as early as I can remember, all these feelings were going on in me. And the two things were, I could have let it beat me down. I could have been really unhappy, but I chose not to be. I chose to do things on my own. I separated from other people. I had a great imagination. I played in the backyard. I played in my room by myself. I think that's part of what acting was all about and why I loved it is I could become other things. I could step away from the pain in my life. And that also meant that I could give form to pain and have other people feel like, oh, wow, he really understands what this is about. He understands that life is not just an easy thing. Mm. So that's some of it. And in the midst of this, I will also say, you know, my parents supported me in everything I did. We didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And that was okay. Uh, You know, we can get into privilege. I didn't see myself as privileged, but I was. I was a white person. I grew up in a certain community. I went to a certain high school, local high school. There was a certain kind of privilege that I expected and I got into. But my parents never said, don't be an actor. Don't go to, they were like, you want to do it? Do it. So I have tremendous gratitude to them while I also have criticisms of them. You know, I think my family did the best job they could possibly do, Nadine, in raising me. They taught me good ethical feelings and choices about work ethics and so forth. And yet at the same time, it was not easy. It was not happy. And that, you know, related to what you do, it helped me to feel that a healthy life for me was a life where I could be truly myself, that I could be who I was all the time. This is who I am. I'm going to be in integrity. It didn't always happen until, you know, many years later when I went off to New York City and I was like, okay, so you're going to live your life. You're going to be openly gay. You're going to do this. You're going to audition. You're going to do all of these things. And that's what I was mostly proudest of in my life was trying to be who I was, finding out who I am and then living it without harming any other person. What was your community like? You say you're privileged. So what was was it a um, culturally diverse area where you lived? Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts in a small town on the South Shore called Hingham. And we are talking like out of a play because it was historical, like 1633, Peter Hobart came down the river. He discovered Hingham, Massachusetts. Eleanor Roosevelt called the main street of Hingham, Massachusetts, the most beautiful main street in the United States. In her book, we had famous poet from there. The Mayflower beams were in houses. You know, we had homes that were part of the Underground Railroad, where the chimney had a black paint um, strip of paint around the top, which was part of the Underground Railroad. So this was a historic, privileged community that I grew up in large homes, um, good education. Everybody went to school. And at the same time, and I felt privileged. I was. I was a white person. And at the same time, we didn't have a lot of Black people in the community. Um, I didn't understand this. I mean, I, I had a friend. He was Chris Roundtree was his name. He was a Black friend of mine. And people would go, how do you feel about Chris being Black? And I go, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's my friend. I'm like, Black? And then all of a sudden, the idea that there was difference from me came up. 
you know, in the community. So um, that's some of what I felt in terms of the privilege. Most of the people who went were in Hingham went on to do go to college and create lives. They either lived in Hingham and went to Boston. We were about a 20 minute drive away. So it was that kind of community. It was a safe community. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful, you know, and uh, still behind closed doors, a lot went on in people's lives. And the arts were very big there. Um, sports were huge. So there was big competition, you know, between all of the sports and the art world. At the same time, singing and acting was important. Art was important there in terms of drawing and classes. You know, we were, you know, all my life I was in competitions for singing and winning awards is uh, in acting and, you know, the civic chorus groups and all of that. So it was like always an achiever type of an attitude that you would live a good life, you would achieve it, you would go forward. So that's pretty much like the type of community. Yeah. But it sounds like there were rules because you said that you were talking you were talking about, well, predominantly white neighborhood, Caucasian oh, yes. neighborhood. And yeah. then, you know, people kind of hinting at, oh, there's a different person here and how can you associate mm-hmm. with this person? And then your struggles with your own identity in um, learning that you were having feelings for men. And sure. but the expectations were, no, you're, you live a cis life where you, ha- you exactly. get married to a woman mm-hmm. and you have children and this is the way things are going to be. So how did you navigate those feelings of knowing that you didn't belong, but then not channeling them into feelings of resentment, but instead saying, I'm going to be myself. How did you do that? That's a good question. You know, first of all, the matter about being gay, I was really hidden about it. In those days, you didn't talk about it. You just didn't even show it. It was like unaccepted. You know, you knew some people were a little different. And Michael was different. He was, I, sure, I was, I mean, I was bullied through junior high and high school. So six or seven years of bullying, being tortured, you know, sissy, femme, homo, uh, faggot, you name it, queer. I was called those names. I, I feared for my life in my own community because the, the football teams, the sports people, the bullies told me they were going to get me and they were going to hurt me. You know, so I lived with constant fear, trying to act masculine, trying to be the standard of what it is to be a man in the world at that time. Um, And yet I was tortured inside. I thought, how am I going to live this way? I didn't have feelings for women. I thought if I marry somebody and I raise a family, I'm going to be untrue to myself. I just, I can't do it. Did I have feelings for women? Yes. Did I have physical uh, attraction and actually be physical with women? Absolutely. I didn't have a problem with it, but I didn't have the desire that I had to be with men. So when that comes along, um, I knew I was in a crisis mode. I was getting ready to go off to college. I was 18, had just graduated, and I was in a crisis. And I said to my mother one day, I said, I have to speak to a therapist about how I see the world and particularly men. So I went to a good friend of mine. Her father was a doctor. He set me up uh, to meet with um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist in Boston. And I went and my feeling was, I just want to change. I want to get this out of my life, but I don't want to be patient. I don't want to live on a, I don't want to have to spend my life on a couch telling you who I am for 30 years. I just want to change. And I remember going there and the doctor was really, really nice. And as a matter of fact, he was so kind to me. He said to me pretty quickly, he said, there's nothing wrong with you, Michael. He said, some people like vanilla ice cream. Some people like chocolate ice cream. You happen to like men and there's nothing wrong with that. 
And I just like melted because I thought, wow, this is it. I said, thank you. I said so much. And he also said to me, he said, I could try and help you, but I'm not going to give you the treatment that they recommend unless you want to know about it and want to go forward. And I said, what is that? He said, we'll put you in a room and we'll hook you up to electrical mm-hmm. wires. And every time we show you a picture of a woman, we'll be fine. And when we show you a picture of a man, you'll get an electrical shock. And eventually, oh when you see or have feelings about men, you'll have pain in your life. And I thought, oh, great. I don't care for women. And eventually, I won't care for men. I'll end up caring for nobody. But he said, I don't want you to go that route. And I said, should I come back and see you? He said, no, you're normal. You're healthy. You're a smart human being. Go and live your life. He said, you know, if you want to come back, you can visit. But I think it's a waste of your time. So I remember leaving there and driving home. And I pulled over to the side of the road halfway home. And I just cried because I felt tremendous relief. I felt somebody really understood me. I let everything that was inside of me that was all pent up for years out And then I went off to college and I still had the question, but I was discovering who I was. I was really active in the gay community and the straight community. And I wasn't just out there or whatever. I was still very private. This was my life. I wanted to lead my life as I wanted to. I didn't feel I had to tell people I was gay or straight or anything. I just wanted to be who I was. Mm -hmm. So I continued to do that for a long time. And did I run into discrimination? Yeah, it's hard to describe that I could be in New York City, you know, where Stonewall was in 1969, where the Stonewall riots were and gay rights had come way out. And I can remember going to auditions Mm -hmm. and being up for a major role on a Broadway show. And the director got up from his chair and he walked around and he came over to me. He goes, I'd like to give you the part, but people will know you're gay and that doesn't make money. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I, you know, in a community in the theater, they take care of their own. There's that, but also you didn't talk about it. You didn't show that you were gay or you didn't show what it was. But to have people actually come to me and say this. And then I thought, if I say something or I defend myself, then I'm going to get a reputation of being difficult to work with. And it wasn't his business or anybody's business what my private life was. Could I do the job? Yeah. And I didn't think the way I acted or sang was especially gay. You know, I didn't see it that way. I just thought, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I got great skills. When you hear me sing and you hear me act, I'm going to get roles. And I did. And I was very bold, Nadine. I asked for what I want. I waited. I asked, see me. Give me this part. I'll come back tomorrow. I'll audition tomorrow. When you see me, you're going to offer it. And they would. I fought for everything I did. And at the same time, kept my private life private. It wasn't anybody's business what my sexual preferences were. You know, were regular straight men, hey, you know, you're pretty straight, so we want to hire you. I don't think that happened. I hear a lot of tenacity. I hear a lot of self-acceptance. And it sounds like you were able to do that, not just from within, but also have the within validated with therapy. Mm -hmm. And there's something that you said earlier that caught my attention when you were talking about acting, giving form to pain so that Mm. others could see it, experience it, might relate to it. Yeah. Does it feel like that is a way where you were making the contribution that you could make and showing and connecting with others in a loving trusting way 
Absolutely, Nadine. I was most myself uh, when I was on stage singing and acting. And if I had, let's say, an eight or 10 minute solo, I knew that I was going out there to cause some kind of emotion in another person. It could be it could be a love song, it could be a torch song, it could be a song of tragedy, you know, anything from a musical. Not every musical is happy-go-lucky. You have Les Miserables, um, you know, there's a lot of pain in there and people show their emotions. And I felt if I could go out there and be true to words and music, or if I could go out there and and be true to a scene between two people, you know, and people would go, oh, oh, I relate to that, or wow, that was beautifully done, or that's me. Then I felt like I had achieved who I was. I was able to give myself and have another human being for a few minutes or two hours in a play feel like, wow, I was understood. I identified with Shakespeare. I identified with Chekhov or Ibsen or Stephen Sondheim or Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, uh, that somebody could feel like uh, e even in Oklahoma, the opening number, somebody sings, oh, what a beautiful morning. My God, it's pure gratitude. That's how that musical opens up. And then you have something like uh, Stephen Sondheim doing Sweeney Todd, you know, about a woman who was a baker and they murdered people, chopped them up into meat pies. You know, that's that's like it. So the opportunity to give myself to words and music and to have another person in the audience feel understood or released, like, oh my God, that's my life. And it wasn't always easy. You know, I, I played some of the parts I loved most were evil parts where people did mean things to other people. And that's in all of us. You know, so I was, again, trying to give myself with love by being generous, by being fair to somebody else's words and to have a great and good effect on an audience and to do it every single night. Oh my God, it was a dream come true to be able to entertain, you know, and to express yourself and, and to put my own personal feelings and pain into it because I studied, you know, Strasbourg method, all different kinds, and you use your personal life you don't just get it from the script. You use your personal life in both instances. So um, for me to be able to show some of what I lived through was like an honor for me and, and to have somebody else feel like, thank you. you, you touched me, you moved me. So let's take that experience, what you learned and what you were able to express through your acting to connect with an audience, plus the recognition of your privilege that you mentioned earlier. Can you share some examples with us about how you became um, and how you started to become the passionate advocate for others who don't have a voice that you are? Yeah, I think, Nadine, one of the biggest things was um, being bullied in school from junior high to high school that I was so tortured twisted inside, hated going to school. I just felt like I never wanted to do that to another human being and that I wouldn't allow it if somebody else was doing it to someone else. So I had, I made a choice to try and use my life to have someone else's life be better. And the same with being gay. You do not have to suffer. There are people who you know, at that time when I was going to the theater, they were out, they were doing it. Were they, did they, was it easy? No, but they were out there. They were heroes to me. You know, Larry Kurt in West Side Story, he endured this, but he was out there. He was there 
doing this. And I just felt like I just will use my life. I didn't have to hold a banner. I didn't have to be on television, but I could be there for people that I could talk about it and share my life and my experiences. It was my commitment really to not allow somebody to to have pain, not to be hurt. And I think about it in terms of the Holocaust. You make a choice. The people who endured the Holocaust, which was real, The people who lived through it, they either made a choice to be angry at the world and to punish it or to be Mm -hmm. kinder and help human beings. The majority of those people went out to be kind. And I thought, I have an opportunity to use my pain to be kind, not to feel like I'm a victim. No, I wasn't a victim. I was able to make choices in my mind and go after and say, I want to use this for a different experience. What's an example in later life, say in one of your other roles after acting, say like when you were in more of a corporate role? Yeah, one of the things that I did uh, eventually for like 20 years is I was a headhunter in New York City. I worked with Mm -hmm. all kinds. I was in corporate America. I found people jobs. I developed businesses. One of my great pleasures and stress was finding jobs for people. So someone would come in, I would interview somebody, I would look at their resume, I felt they were right for the role, I'd call them, I'd bring them in, we would interview, and I would get to know them. And they would talk about their lives. I mean, I was dealing with human beings, not just a resume and a job. And a lot of people saw them. I had to have feelings for people. I had to think about what do they want? Most people needed a job. Most people needed to pay a mortgage to get through school, to support their families. And they also wanted to do jobs that they loved, where they felt expressed. So I had an opportunity to ask people questions, even before I was a coach, years before I was a coach, to sort of coach them. And sometimes I would sit down and go, what do you really want to do? And they go, well, I don't want to be in financial, Mike. What I really want to do is go into creative. I want to be in publishing or I want to be in design uh, or public relations. But I know they're never going to do that because my resume is all financial. And I said, I'm going to ask you something. By tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, get your resume to me, revamp it so that you show that the skills that you have in financial are easily transferable into public relations or into publishing. Get it on my desk at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to make some calls. The people who trusted me, got that resume at eight o'clock in the morning. The people who weren't serious, who didn't really want to do the work, two or three weeks later, would go, you know, I'm working on it, Michael. I go, no, you're not working on it with me. You need to go away because you didn't do it seriously. So then the people would give me their resume. I'd get on the phone to a client. And I go, you're looking for this job. I have somebody, but I want you to disregard the resume. Don't even look at the resume. Just meet them, talk to them. You're going to hire them. So the person would call me, say, okay, I saw the resume. I'm going to trust you. They meet them and they call me and they go, you're right. You're 100% correct. This is the person for me. We're going to hire it. So I had the opportunity, Nadine, Mm -hmm. to be kind to somebody else who had all these desires and didn't think they could get ahead maybe. And I was like, I'm going to give you courage. I'm going to show you we can do this. You can just do it. This is your life. Let's do it. And it could be anything, Nadine, from a temporary spot all the way up to an executive in human resources. You know, I could, could, could fill a, a, a filing clerk job for Shearson and Lehman, and the person was thrilled because they loved to organize. It was a steady job. That was it. I could find a human resource directory job. You know, it was an opportunity to help people work. You know, that was the great thing. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to ask you a little embarrassing question, Michael. What would you say are your greatest gifts? Mm. 
I think my biggest gift is my desire to serve and help another human being. I will just go to town with that. Somebody needs help or somebody doesn't know a direction, I will go. I, I will keep going and until they get what they want. And then I don't quit and they go, we're done, Michael. I go, nah, we're not finished yet. There's still more to do. And it's a little like I used to, there was a famous movie called Lifeboat. This boat blows up. And there's like six people in a lifeboat and they're in the middle of the ocean. They're rowing. I saw myself as like that. I said, I don't know where the hell I'm going, but I'm going to get you all to shore. Trust me, I'm going to row my brains out. We're going to do it. We're going to get to shore. We're going to be fine. So I would say that was one thing. Two, um, the other thing was to really try and know another human being and help them to live the life that they wanted. And that included the job that they wanted, the company they wanted to work for, people they wanted to work with. People didn't just necessarily ask them these questions. And I would say, who do you want to work with most in the world? And they would have a list of three to five people. And I go, well, let's write them a letter. Write them a letter and say you want to interview and tell them why you want to work with them. Get an interview. And then we go, oh, I, can't. I said, there you go. You're shooting yourself in the foot. If you want this, go get it. Then I would say, what kind of companies do you want to work for? So we'd make a list of three to five companies. I said, okay, Google them, get on there, make a connection, find out who they are, tell them why you want to work there. Have your desire meet them. So I was using all of my creativity, trying to get a person to really do what they want to do be who they want to be. Because so many people I met, Nadine, were in jobs that they hated. And certainly we all need jobs. And sometimes you have to take a job just to make money. It's a job. That's it. You're making your money. God bless you. And at the same time, you should go after your dreams. You should go after finding work that you love and what you want to do. Don't let your dreams go. Your dreams are so important. They're the essence of who you really are. So to me, it makes total sense. You've just always been very clear about what's important to you and your purpose. And that meant doing the best that you can to support people to become who they are or to step into that. And so it makes sense to me that then you went on to become a life coach and that extended into uh, where we met and the Akimbo community. Yeah, because, you know, I had been like 20 years in, in corporate America and boy, that is ruthless. That's cutthroat. There's a tremendous amount of pressure in New York City to produce everything with numbers, numbers, numbers. And at the end of the year, we'd have a big dinner and then they take me to the room the next morning and they go, so what are you going to do for us this year, Michael? And I would set new goals and I would make them more money and I'd make them more money. I was really good at making money for them, you know, and I was killing myself. I was burning Michael Feely out. I would end up getting to work at six in the morning because nobody was in and I would make my calls and I'd do my work and I'd stay until six at night and then I'd go home and I'd prep people on the phone for jobs the next day. And I was just angry about everything. Everything made me angry. My life was, I felt was like, I can't do enough. I can't make enough money. Da, 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 da. And then what happened is one day my boss walked in and she said, we're closing the business. After 13 years, she said, like you turn out a light, you're going on unemployment tomorrow. And I was like, what are, you, what are you kidding me? And I was like, oh my God, I was 58 years old. And I thought, I, how am I going to find a job at 58? You know, and other recruiters were calling me saying, bring your business over here. And I kept thinking, I don't know if I want to stay in corporate America. It's killing me. And a good friend of mine, Anne-Marie, grabbed me, pulled me out to a Starbucks and said, what the hell are you going to do with your life, Michael? And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, Anne-Marie. And she said, do you ever think about becoming a life coach? And I said, what the hell is a life coach? And she gave me an assignment. She knows that's why if somebody says, look up everything you can about life coach and get back to me in a week. So I did. 
I started at Columbia University, NYU. I did all the interviews. I called people. On Christmas Eve, I was talking to the head <laughs> of the coaching uh, division at Columbia University. He talked to me for an hour. He goes, let me finish correcting this paper and I'll call you back. He talked to me for an hour and I realized the program wasn't for me. I didn't want to coach executives in a suit. Could I coach an executive? Yes, but I didn't want to do it in a suit. So I did everything and then I went back to school. I found a great organization called IPEC, the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. And I went to school. It was like getting a master's in nine months. Oh my God, I'd been in school for 30 years. And I was writing papers and coaching and doing all of this stuff. And I went back, I got certified. You had to do an oral exam. You had to do a written exam. Unfortunately, I'm very proud. I was at the top of my class for this, you know. Doesn't matter, I don't wholly know. But I was able to do what I wanted to do and do life coaching, career coaching, and change coaching. And so I built my own business. I didn't ever want to work for anybody else. And I put myself regularly out of business in AD because I get people up on their feet in like three months ago. Okay, you're ready. There you go. You got your dream. Let's go. And they will go. And if they want to stay longer, we coach longer. But I was doing that um, and really enjoying my life. And then, you know, I'm mature. I'm vintage, as I say. You know, I'm getting like a fine wine, a good book, a great movie. I'm becoming a classic as I get older. And uh, out of the blue, I was taking all of these workshops at the Kimbo workshop. I was thrilled. I was learning new things, stretching myself as ever. And out of the blue, Kimbo called me and, and sent me a letter and said, would you um, like to be a coach in the Kimbo workshops? And for me... It was the pinnacle of my career because this was with Seth Godin, who set these up originally. His integrity was phenomenal. His creativity was unbelievable. The material was some of the best material I had ever experienced. And I took a lot of workshops and then the people were phenomenal. So why wouldn't I want to work for this kind of organization? You know, many other organizations approached me, but I just was like, they're not, they don't have integrity. Their material isn't great. They just want to make money off me. So it all moved into that. And this is what I'm doing now. Here I am. I just celebrated my 70th birthday. And I'm, an, I'm a coach. I'm still like, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> two days after Christmas, Michael Feely's born. And he's still accepting luxury items. So if you want to send them, yeah, I can take those. But um, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, I write every day and I publish every day. I learned that in the creative workshops. And, in, uh, you know, I started writing. I'm, I'm in, I think in like 13 days, I'll have been writing for two years straight and publishing every place I can. So uh, that's, cool. that's sort of it. But yes, all of that, I have a, I've always had a desire to be happy, to do what I want, to learn, to stretch, to have a good effect on other people. And as you know, Nadine, in the workshop, we have an opportunity to have a great effect on other students who are mm -hmm. creatives. We can ask questions, we can read material, we have meetings, we have huddles, we have all kinds of wonderful things to encourage another person to be all that they can be, you know? So it's very selfless. It's just like, for me, it's like, wow, look what this person wrote. I owe them something. Here we go. And then I'll type something and I go on. No doubt you are one of the most authentically loving people I know. So I thank you for everything you do. Whew. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's that's like you know your purpose in life. You hope to have a good effect on another human being with love, mm. and mm. that means wanting to know another person to understand them, and that is a lifelong experience. Mm -hmm. You know, when you coach somebody, uh, somebody comes into a workshop, they could be 25, 30, 50, 60. You're taking their whole life in your hands. 
you know, it, it would be insulting for me to say, yeah, I know who you are. I understand you. No, here I am 70 years old. There's so much about me that people need to understand. And lots of people understand me in many good ways, but um, we have an opportunity. I have an opportunity to give back my life experience to offer understanding to have empathy for another human being mm -hmm. in whatever capacity it is. So that desire to be generous, to give, to love another human being, to show respect, uh, it's constantly uh, with me, you know, and it's not always easy. I have some people I could like, you know, hope they fall off the face of the earth, you know, but that's just who I am. So I have to criticize my resistance and my narrow self. But I would say overall, you know, to walk through the world and think even as you walk down the street, you hope to have a good effect on another person by the way you present yourself is, is like a choice. We all have certain choices we make every single day to be grateful yes. or resentful, mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. angry or to be happy, mm -hmm. to be good or to be evil in some way. And it's a, a conscious choice and you can do that. You can choose to be different. And the more you do it, the more you practice, the better off it is. Wow. Okay, Michael, do you have a question for me? Oh, why do you do what you do, Nadine? Totally relate to a lot of what you said. I have always felt from a very young age that I was here to be nurturing. Mm, what and a beautiful I description. Knew, thank you. And I know that would be definitely through family, but I also wanted to serve my community in the best way possible. Mm. And I wanted to be an advocate for health. And see, Nadine, what's so important here is that these are your words. These are the essence of who you are. You didn't just say service like Michael Feely does. You said, I'm here to nurture people, that you wanted to be an advocate. Those are important words. And that's what this, this entire interview is really about, is about being you and true to yourself. What are the facts? And this is really in the center of health. What are the facts about Nadine Kelly? What is the truth about Nadine Kelly? What are the facts about Michael Feely's life? What are the truths about Michael Feely? And how do I carry those through the world? For you, it's nurturing people. For me, it was like opening a fire hydrant mm -hmm. to serve somebody. Somebody would say, I need, and I would go, oh my God, I would flip that fire hydrant watch this. We're going to get you exactly what you want. Watch this. You need your driveway shovel? Great. You want your lawn mowed perfectly? I'll do it. You, want, you need some Christmas cards? Great. You want me to shop for you and make your house beautiful? So when you arrive to this rental property, bingo. You want to get a job working for the CEO of, of Donna Karen? Watch this, baby. Put your hat on. We're going to get there. For me, that's service. And did I charge for it? Well, I made money off it, but it wasn't the main thing. Main thing was, I'm going to help you be yourself and be really happy. And that's what you're talking about. You were here to nurture and advocate to other people. That's the essence of you. And it's your words. It's not just a label. Hi, I'm a good customer service rep. No, this is the essence of who Nadine Kelly is, the truth and the facts of who you are and how you live. I appreciate that. And since we're talking about health, this is the question I ask. Every one of my guests at the mm. end. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? Mm. The first thing that comes to my mind is to have goodwill for people. And goodwill means 
wanting to know what would have a good effect on another human being, really wanting to know, how can I have goodwill for you? Maybe it's helping somebody get the right job and going after what that means. Having a good effect, because it's, it's a little like the elevator situation. You get into an elevator with somebody, you go from the first floor to the ninth floor. Do you want to have a good effect on a person, a bad effect on a person, or no effect at all? You want to have a good effect on people. It's our deepest desire is to want to walk around and have a good effect in whatever we do. Yoga, podcasting, you want to have a good effect. You don't want to have a bad effect. Coaching somebody, gardening, I want to have a good effect. You know, selling a home uh, in real estate or renting something to somebody. I would, so I would say the essence of it is really having a good effect on another person. The desire, goodwill to know what those good things are and then to try and have them happen. To another human being. And it can be tough stuff. It can be as tough as you are not going to have that drink. You are not going to eat that food. That's poison to you. So I'm going to stop you. I'm not going to enable you to do this. Goodwill is, is it's bigger than Hallmark greeting, you know, slogans. And those are very good, but goodwill is tough stuff. And you have to sometimes stop a person. No, I'm going to fire you because it's just not working. And you're doing bad things to the company and bad things to yourself. So I'm letting you go. You go somewhere else because you don't want to change. It could be that forceful. So I think that's what it is. And then I also add to it, it's really health is about knowing who you are and living who you are, the truth and the facts about who you are and never harming another individual by the way you live. Thank you, Michael. My heart is full. Oh, thank you. Oh, are you kidding? We should do this again and again and again. But we do do it, <laughs> Nadine. Every time we talk in Akimbo, we get to work together. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for this. This has been a great honor. I hope I did justice to your questions. Uh, oh, yes. Know. And more. Thank you for your generous contribution. I'm, I'm delighted. I'm thrilled. Thank you. If you're feeling unbalanced and you want more, you want a more integrated, balanced, healthier outlook, showing up with your whole self to your whole life, let's connect. Find me at npkhealthintegration.com.